with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation, the second hour of Ghost Chronicles Radio right here on TojiNet. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England Zone Van Helsing. And uh, breaking news, in case you didn't catch the international version, uh, breaking news in Boston here, uh, a, the head of the Harvard School Morgue was arrested for selling body parts. Uh, those went to some stores in Salem, which is well, allegedly, of course, I should say allegedly, uh, to uh, some stores in Salem and places out of state as well. They turned into art and other weird stuff anyway so our special guest tonight is a legend hunter and i wonder if he's got body parts hanging around too um he is mr christopher rondina did i say that right you did indeed oh thank you so much christopher so you got any body parts hanging around i do not have any body parts hanging down hanging around i've got a couple of uh, skulls but they're made of plaster Okay. Uh, I, you know, I mean, it, it's an intriguing story. It's um, it's fascinating in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, they used to sell body parts back in the days in the Victorian times and stuff. And, and there is a, a, a fascination and a, and a lot of people who collect with, especially in, in our paranormal community, there are these oddity museums and stuff that people like to have weird stuff, as we say. And uh you know, I know several of my friends have, uh, you know, a different piece. I know Christian Day in Salem uh, had a skull uh, in his store for many years, probably still there, as, as well as other things. So uh, what's your thoughts on that? I, I have to say that, I mean, obviously, if a person wants to collect, um, you know, either uh, medical sample body parts, uh, you know, bones, things like that, as long as it's been cleared by something that was donated to, you know, to, for that purpose, for uh, for research, for investigation, um, mm -hmm. that that doesn't bother me in the least. Obviously, we I don't know the whole story about this, uh, this fellow in Boston, but uh, was this supposed to be a legal thing that he was doing or something illegal? Illegal. He was uh, he's the head of the, the MOG at Harvard University. Oh, and so he was he was doing it without clearance. That, of course, is a much bigger problem. And I would say that that is uh, that, that's the kind of offense that I think that not many people are going to look the other way on. So he would uh, he would bring people into the morgue and they could like chose their things. He was accused of selling brains, heads, skin, bones and other parts. So and these were bodies, uh, cadavers that were donated uh, by loved ones uh, to the Harvard Medical School for research. Uh, and the the crime is is the stealing of them and the transportation of them uh, stolen body parts over state lines because this is quite a big net evidently uh, it went up to, to Pennsylvania I know and, and other parts of the country as well as I believe some of the store owners uh, alleged store owners that have these body parts include stores in Peabody and uh, Salem so uh, creepy dolls I believe was one of them that was listed so. Cats, crazy creations, or something. I don't know there's another one, but 
you can check it out in the news go to boston.com or any of the just put it out there it, it, so. it definitely sounds like a it sounds like a shady thing and certainly uh something that i don't know how he thought he was going to get away with it that sounds like uh that that's that's the sort of thing i i wouldn't have taken the risk on i know but isn't it fascinating in a way Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, people's fascination with with, you know, uh, medical curiosities, body parts and things like that has always been fascinating. I have to say it's not something that is overly appealing to me. The, the you know, the the the, the 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 stores that have like the pickled, you know, medical specimens and, and anomalies yeah. and things like that. I always find it a little bit off putting, which is funny because I'm I'm sort of in the spooky business. But somehow when you get into the, you know, sort of like, you know, dead things preserved, it, it becomes less attractive. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've had people on the show that collected uh, um, crime scene photos. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, that's that's pretty macabre in itself. I mean, you know, these were not doctored crime scene photos. These were real crime scene photos. So, I mean, uh, it, it's intriguing because we are in the, involved in this paranormal community. And the community likes to, I, to my, in my opinion, likes to push the... Uh, the limits sometimes and, yeah, uh, yeah it's the, the the fascination with serial killers and things like that is not one that i've ever really had and i do have to say that you know the, the the kind of trend towards you know violence as a form of entertainment or being fascinated by violence to that degree again it's not really something that connects well with me if it's something that really floats somebody's boat then you know then god bless them as long as they're they're uh, you know keeping it on the up and right. up but not something that's, that's i find of, of great appeal so you're not a big slasher movie fan? No, I mean I have my I have my you know areas of interest. I mean I'm fascinated by the Jack the Ripper story very much because you know there's yeah. so much to it. I mean it's not just about the killings, but the the cover up and all of the many many you know sort of wrinkles of that case. So that one fascinates me. But as a rule, I've never found serial killers or that kind of thing intriguing at all. Slasher movies, I feel like you know there's only so much blood that can entertain you before you run out of story. <laughs> so uh, you know and that kind of thing. I'm I'm much more into the spooky stuff. I like the ghosts and the monsters, and and uh, that's that's definitely where my passion lies yeah i mean but where is the line between the ghost and the, the monster of of story and the monster in life i mean for instance dracula one of your books is uh, is about dracula correct a uh, hunting dracula yes yeah, I talk a lot yeah, about the historical Dracula. Dracula in the book and, and about, you know, the, the atrocities that he was accused of and the ones that I believe are real and the ones that I believe were were probably, you know, drummed up or overstated by his political enemies. I mean, he was he was a man in the middle of, a, you know, of a, a war throughout the most most of his life. And he had a lot of political enemies and and they, they did a lot of campaigning against him. And part of it was uh, making him seem like a monster was a big part of how they, you know, drummed up uh, support for their own ar armies. So there's some things that, that he was accused of that I think he definitely did and some things that I think were just made up for the purpose of propaganda so you know and it isn't the violent aspect of it that fascinates me it's it's the lore behind it mm -hmm. he's he's believed actually in in a, in a strange light as as the the hero of the savior of, of Europe uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, the Romanians believe that they, they kind of look at him like uh, their own version of King Arthur. They say that that, uh, you know, Vlad Dracula will rise again in Romania's time of greatest need to save them. And and it's certainly fair to say that that if it was not for Vlad Dracula's, uh, you know, war against the Turks and his his rather extraordinary successes against the Turkish sultan, uh, it's possible that that uh, history would have had a very different outcome. The Muslims, uh, you know, Turks were spreading across Europe and, you know, and not many people were standing in their way. Dracula had the courage to do that and and that may well have changed history permanently
I know it's fascinating stuff. So how did you get involved in, in, in uh, this legend hunting uh, legend? I guess legend hunting is a good. Yeah, I, I consider myself a legend hunter when I'm trying to sound uh, professional, when I'm trying to have a little <laughs> bit of fun with it. I call myself a monster hunter. Um, you know, I, I think it came from growing up. I, I'm a New England boy born and bred. I was you know raised in Rhode Island. And, and when I was a teenager, I heard uh, all the uh, all the vampire folklore that a lot of times, you know, uh, back in the the. 70s and the 80s seem to be concentrated in, in Rhode Island. And uh, stories about Mercy Brown, the, the vampire of Exeter, and, and all these different uh, stories. And I love them. But anytime I would tell anyone about them, they looked at me like I had two heads because it just wasn't common knowledge. And so when I was in my mid-20s, I decided that I would uh, take a shot at writing a book on the topic of Rhode Island's vampire folklore. And when that book came out, it kind of it it sort of my first step on the road to becoming not just a, an author but a but a legend hunter and a monster hunter and and as time went by I thought you know I, I did a couple of books on vampire folklore expanded the the horizons of the of the you know all throughout New England and then I thought well let's try some other topics and so I started writing about ghosts and the headless horseman and all these uh, um, iconic legendary monsters and it's just been a it's been a great ride since then. Yeah. So if you you dealt with the New England's vampires, then you must know uh, Thomas Deck. You know, and of course, Bell as well. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, uh, Michael Bell was a was a great mentor of mine uh, when I first got started. He was wonderfully, wonderfully forthcoming with information. And um, uh, and uh, you know, I, I know Tom put out a book a couple of years ago on on vampires as well. But uh, um, yeah, it, 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 for me, it was just it was a passion project, something I'd been fascinated by for years and years. And uh, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I actually did the the first book on the topic. I mean, it was a it was a little local interest book, you know, nothing that you know like. You know, hit the papers or anything like that but right. uh, so that was back in 97 and and uh, um and I actually've had the the honor of filling in for Michael a couple of times when he wasn't available so Michael Bell has actually called on me to to do speaking engagements for him and I have to say that that that's always a, a point of pride that, that you know he had enough faith in me to, to to call on me to sort of to be in his stead once or twice yeah I I, I met oh god I met Michael Bell years ago he did uh, I had a conference out in uh Western Mass at the uh, Hooten Mansion, and uh, he he was a speaker there. And, he's such uh, a fantastic guy. He's a yeah. great. He's a. He, I mean, immensely knowledgeable. Obviously, he, he's become known for the vampire thing, but his his you know his knowledge of folklore, um, you know, and tradition all throughout New England is is exhaustive. Yeah, I think he moved to Florida, though, didn't he? He uh, actually he lives in Texas about half the oh, year. Texas. Yeah, okay. he lives in Texas half the year, and then he comes up here for the for the uh, um, he he goes down there for the winter, and he comes up here uh, for the summer months, I believe. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, I haven't seen. Him. Lord knows, nobody wants to be in Texas in the heart, in the heat of summer. Ah, this is where the uh, radio station is, by the way. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's it's mighty mighty warm down there. Yeah, it does. Anyway, so. Uh, Growing up, did you have a fascination about any of this? I mean, was it ghost stories that intrigued you? Was it, uh, you know, legends? Uh, what was it exactly? I, I, you know, I'm not even sure if I can say what came first, um, you know, but I will tell you that, that you know, one of the things that I was very fortunate is uh, I lived um, in uh, Middletown, Rhode Island, which is just uh, basically a suburb of Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, the area I lived in was very rural. We had little, uh, you know, little um, country cemeteries tucked back in the woods. And we had a wonderful wildlife sanctuary um, that was just up the road from me that had a huge Halloween event for local kids every year. 
and they would have uh, they would do um, they'd use an old movie projector and they'd screen all the old classic monster movies, the Universal films oh, and things cool. like that. And so I grew up just absolutely loving monsters. And I don't know if I first got interested in ghosts or vampires or werewolves or, or which one was my my sort of first love, but I had so much access to that kind of thing. My father liked to tell ghost stories. Um, I think he just made them up as he went, but oh, he did. Yeah, he and he would walk me and the local kids up to this. There was a cemetery just up the street from us, and we'd sit around in the cemetery, and he'd just make the ghost stories up. But it was great for us, you know. That's and so cool. we always, you know, got dressed up for Halloween and went door to door. It was a small neighborhood; we knew everybody, so it was just magical, you know. And autumn is still to this day my absolute favorite time of year. And I just grew up as what I think they they tend to call a monster kid, you know. I love the monster movies and monster comic books and and all that kind of thing, and it, I never grew out of it. Mm-hmm. So how do you go in? I mean, I can see how you, you can research, research like the New England legends. But when you're doing like, for instance, your book on um, the uh, uh, werewolf. Oh, God, I'll never say that. Giovanni. The, the, the beast of the beast of Javadon. Yes. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> Better you than me. Yeah. How, how do you research that book? I mean, is it just do you just work on the Internet or is, is it more? It's it's a little bit of everything. Obviously, the internet is a fantastic resource nowadays because so many documents have de- have been digitized. So there's a lot of great material you can find that way. Um, I uh, I have a phenomenal book uh, that's a translated edition of a, a mid nineteenth uh, century book that's all sorts of letters and documents uh, that were were written by the various people involved in the the case. And and for those of you you know really? uh, your, of your viewers who aren't familiar with it, so so in the seventeen uh, sixty in a very rural portion of France, um, uh, something started killing people at an alarming rate. And this was an area of the world where wolf attacks were not uncommon, but this, whatever this thing was, it appeared to be larger than a normal wolf, but was usually described as wolf-like. Um, some people claimed that they'd heard it speak. People had claimed that it had stood upright on uh, two legs. Whatever the truth is of that, um, it was killing people very, very frequently and um, in a way that was not common with any predator they knew at the time. And this ended up lasting for about three years. And uh, after it had killed almost 100 people, finally, um, a farmer from a little town called um, La Bissere of St. Marie uh, is said to have shot it. And legend says that he shot it with a silver bullet, but we don't really know for sure whether that's a later addition to the legend or not. But it has it's kind of joined the ranks of werewolf folklore. Um, France was overrun with werewolf uh, legends during the the 16 and 1700s. Certainly, they had werewolf trials and executed people um, for the crime of lycanthropy, which was being a, a were, excuse me a werewolf. And um, so, it's an amazing story, and I've always been fascinated by it. And um, when I was looking for a new project, I thought I've always loved werewolves, and and you know grew up with again the Wolfman and all the great classic werewolf movies. And I thought it's it's a story I've always wanted to investigate. And uh, you know, so again, I launched into finding old documents. Uh, you know, uh, cryptozoologists, you know, have been trying to determine whether it was some unknown creature. Some people believe it was a true werewolf. Some people believe it was a serial killer. But it's just a wonderfully rich and complex story and there's so much werewolf folklore associated with it that i couldn't resist so when you write these books like the werewolf uh you you go through the facts you you talk about the case you talk about particular instances i'm sure Mm -hmm. and and do you make a conclusion at the end or or is it uh left open 
I will usually offer my thoughts on it, but I don't claim to be, I'm not an anthropologist and I'm not a historian. I'm a monster lover, you know, and I, I don't try to portray, portray myself as anything else. So I offer my own personal perspective on, you know, what I think the most likely, um, you know, the most likely answer is, if in fact there is a, a likely answer. Um, but I always leave the door open because I'm not, I'm not, you know, arrogant enough to believe that after 300 years, I'm the one who's going to solve the mystery. Um, so I have a very, very, you know, I have a very passionate pet theory about what I believe the Beast of Javadon was. I'm not going to give it away here because hopefully some folks will be interested in picking up the book. But, Absolutely. Um, but uh, you know, but I also do spend some time debunking the theories that I don't think are very likely you know oh, there's, so you do there's, do that you do yeah i do as much theories. as possible again i don't i don't completely rule them out but i offer my own thoughts like for instance so just last month i came back from france you know i spent uh you know about a week in javadon uh um researching this and the moment I arrived in the region, um, I started to realize that a lot of the things that people have said didn't make a lick of sense to me because of the landscape there. I mean, it's a massive area that is, um, you know, hugely mountainous with deep valleys. And it was a time when uh, obviously there was no public transit of any kind. You were either on a horse, you were on, uh, you were on a horse or you were in a cart or you were on foot. And to travel these vast distances, it wasn't just walking in a straight line. These people would have had been climbing mountains through um, thick forests and everything. And it changed the way I looked at the entire case. And so, you know, that's why when I do these books, I try to go to the real locations. I try to travel and I try to find out what the lives were of these people, because I don't think if you know that you can really have a sense of what happened or or how it might have played out. See, that's, that's a problem in a lot of cases now. And in fact, in, in, in this woke movement that we have is, too, is is that it's easy to judge the past from the present. Unless you're there and understand what the people believed at the time, you know, that's the only way you can really understand the situation. And it sounds like that's what you were doing. You were, you were, uh, you know, trying to understand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I'm a firm believer that that we shouldn't try to judge the past based on the standards of the present. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, there's 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 things that, you know, I mean, there are things that were, you know, there were evil then just as much as they're evil now and everything. But we also have to understand that things like, you know, um, you know, perspectives on equality, things like slavery and things like that. We, yeah. we can't completely judge people um, based on uh, who lived in a world with a completely different set of values and a completely different set of things. I mean, obviously, slavery is a terrible thing, but we when you're talking about, for instance, I did a book on the legend of Sleepy Hollow and Washington Irving, who wrote this wonderful classic story that's one of the most beloved stories in American history. Probably um, one of the most famous, too. Absolutely. And, and throughout the course of the story, he does frequently refer to, you know, to people of color in some less than pleasant, you know, terminology. And mm -hmm. at first I was a little bit worried about reprinting the story um, just because, I, you know, the, the climate that we live in. And I thought, no, the best thing to do is just to say, listen, it was a different time. And I have a disclaimer in there. I said it was a different time. And there's some there's some language in here that may make people uncomfortable, but you have to understand who they were and the time that they lived in. And that's the, usually the best approach that I take is trying to get people to judge uh, um, the, the lives of these people and these events based on the time frame that they lived in, not based on the way we look at the world today. Yeah. And I don't think it's even judging. I think it's more than it's more understanding. I mean, we, we look at, you know, uh, women's and women's rights. I mean, that's that's new to us. It really is. I mean, you know, the, 2000 years from what the birth of Christ and and the woman's rights were what 19 I forget what the exact years of course I did but I mean we're talking almost 2000 years since since then 
that women finally got the right to vote, finally got the right to own property and stuff like that. It's it's just you know it's it's amazing. Uh, but we we would think it is so barbaric, right? And we we'd laugh at it. Right. And and, I mean, I think it's just important that we not, you know, that we not uh, conclude that, for instance, that a person who, you know, who, you know, uh, a a person who denied a woman, you know, uh, you know, uh, a father might uh, tell his daughter that she had to marry somebody she didn't want to marry. And maybe we end up thinking that that father is a terrible person because of that. Mm -hmm. But it was a culture and it was the way they were raised and it was the way that everyone did things and the freedom to change that didn't come overnight. So, you know, a person, you know, a person in those days might say, I don't like the way this is and I want to change it. But just like anything else, I mean, uh, the best example I've heard many, many times is that is that a person who the person who invented the electric car um, still has to live in a world that uses petroleum, you know, and they don't have the they don't have the the, um, you know, the ability to simply stop using petroleum just because they're looking for a better way. We have to look at the, the world in the past because of that. You know, the way people behaved and the, the things that they experienced were within the world that they had, and they couldn't simply change it by waving a wand. And so sometimes things that look very distasteful to us today was just the world that they lived in. It doesn't mean that there, there wasn't a good reason to make those changes, but we shouldn't assume that anybody was a bad person as a result of that. I mean, there's a lot of, for instance, you know, negative opinion about uh, Thomas Jefferson because of, you know, his relationship with what was Sally Hemings. I, I, I'm right. sorry, I can't remember what, specifically okay. what her name was. You know, know and there's a lot of things about that that are, are really unfortunate. But again, we have to sometimes look at the context of the time and what he was taught to believe was acceptable, you know, and that's that's a hard thing for people to do. Right. That's you know, that that's actually tolerance, believe it or not, because we would be tolerant of. Because we under, try to understand what their thoughts were and why right. they did these certain things. So. Yeah, and and context like that is so important. I think context is one of the most important context and perspective are two of the most important tools in the sort of mental Rolodex that we have, and and that's why when I do these, uh, when I when I research these things, I travel and I try to find out what the people you know who went through it, what their lives were like, and what the environment was like, and I try to get as much perspective on it as possible so that I can come up with what I consider to be a fairly honest assessment of it. And again, I'm not an anthropologist, um, I'm not a psychologist. And I'm not a, a zoologist, and so my my opinions on these things are pretty amateurish. But I try to be very honest and open about them, and I also try to really look at them with an open mind. I actually give you a lot of credit because you're approaching to my, in my opinion, you're approaching in the proper way where we try to understand our path, the path. I mean, that's that's the thing too is is you you went you went to France, so you you talked, so you you have to understand the beliefs of these. Uh, villages or, or, or farmers at the time, and and you know what what was their religious beliefs? What was their uh, cultural beliefs? You know what did they really believe? Did they believe in werewolves? Did they believe in you know angels? What did they? So you, at least you try to get a feeling of where they're coming from when they witness these events. It's actually it's extraordinary with the with the story of the the Jevedon beast is that the um, at the time uh, the church was beginning to lose its grip on the people the sort of age of ab- absolute religious stranglehold on the people was beginning to uh, lose power King Louis the Fourteenth uh, or um, I'm sorry Louis the Fifteenth who was the king at the time of the Jevedon beast uh, was a king who was was trying very hard to modernize the perspective of the people he was attempting to uh, bring science to the fore 
forefront and not be dominated by the church, um, even though there was still a lot of religious persecution at the time. And so he was mortified by the fact that this beast was being uh, was was being uh, portrayed as something supernatural, and that the churches at the time, the Bishop of Mende and all these different uh, places, were writing sermons claiming that the beast was God's vengeance because people were turning away from the church. So it's really? fascinating. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fascinating. So they really played up the idea that this that the beast was a was a scourge from God. Oh wow, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I'm dying to read your book. I'll have to get a copy of it. But uh, uh, if, if somebody wants to find out, uh, first of all, where can they get your books? So um, uh, just a, a little backstory on that. So um, uh, I handle all of my book sales myself now. I was with traditional publishers for about 20 years. And mm -hmm. a few years ago, with the publishing industry changing so, so very much and bookstores oh, yeah. basically going away, I thought I was going to um, dip my toes into self-publishing for the first time. And I will tell you that I would never go back. I love it. Um, I handle all my own sales. If people are interested in, in picking up any of my books, um, my website is ghostboypress.com. So it's just ghostboypress.com. Uh, and if you look up uh, um, ghostboypress, you don't have to even put in .com. If you just look up ghostboypress, I'm sure it'll bring you to my website. Um, the current books that I have available for sale will be Legends of Sleepy Hollow, which is uh, my examination of the origins of the myth of the Headless Horseman and the origin of the of the character uh, um, who is based on a real soldier who was killed in, in uh, near Sleepy Hollow. Hunting Dracula, which I think is a, a very fun examination of both sides of the Dracula story, both the historic Dracula and the um, how Bram Stoker ended up using him to inspire the creation of his vampire. Um, and an old book of mine called Vampires of New England is still available. I've got another book called Ghosts of New England currently out of stock, but it'll be back uh, um, in there soon. I just ran out of copies, unfortunately. But if anybody's looking for any of these, uh, they're, they're uh, welcome to stop by ghostboypress.com. And right now, um, the, uh, the the limited edition of Hunting the Beast, which will be out in September, is available for sale. The limited edition is a hardcover. It's going to be signed and numbered. And if you uh, pick that up, it's uh, $35, but there's only 100 of them available to the public. Excellent. Once that is done, um, I will put out uh, the standard paperback edition, which will be a little bit more readily available. But I, I usually actually do this because the, uh, the proceeds from the limited editions help uh, um, fund the research to create the books. Oh yeah, that makes sense because no, nobody realized how how much work goes into. I mean, I've written three. <laughs> it books can be myself. pretty expensive to travel the world hunting yeah. monsters. I'll exactly. say that. Yes, it is. Anyways, whoa. All right. Anyways, we have to take a break right now. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles. We'll be right back after the following messages. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? My name is Harry Price. I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, now thanks to the wonders of modern technology, 
I am still able to keep abreast of 20th century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Parax Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two slender chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing, although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. And we are back. Of course, that is the theme to Van Helsing, by the way. Uh, we are experiencing, I guess, at the station in Texas, some tornado warnings and power loss. So we, we have a little bit of problems that. And here in uh, lovely downtown Drake, it looks like we have a thunderstorm rolling in. So perfect for the paranormal. We can't beat it. Anyway, uh, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kolick. My special guest is Christopher Rodino. Are you still there, Chris? I'm still here. Yeah, I guess that was kind of weird. But anyway, so crazy weather. Oh, by the way, uh, I, I've, I've taken the name for over 20 years now, uh, New England's own Van Helsing. Do you know why? Since you're a, the Dracula dude. I'd be curious to hear. So do you know who um, Van Helsing was? And yeah. Yes, of course. Well, who was he? He was the uh, the the Dutch doctor who is the uh, sort of the the font of all knowledge in Dracula, and uh, they I, I think he sometimes gets credited with killing Dracula, but of course in the novel not quite the way that works out. But he right. was still the he was the expert on vampires. Right. He was actually a uh, a man of science, which I am. I have a degree in environmental science. Uh, worked on a space program and other things, but he was also versed in the arts and the crafts. So he was like, you know, uh, a well-rounded uh, person. And, and by my, my name, my last name is Kolik, uh, which in Polish means uh, wooden stake or, or a wooden peg. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And I actually come from the same region uh, because Poland's borders changed many times as Van Helsing. So there you go. Oh, that's wonderful. Little, and by the way, kudos on the excellent use of the Van Helsing soundtrack. That's a movie is a great guilty pleasure of mine. Oh, yeah. Isn't that great? It's so much fun. Yeah. As oh, I said, uh, I've loved the Universal Monsters ever since I was a kid. And when that movie came out, I was the first in line of the theater. Throw them all there. Throw them all in one movie. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we love our monster movies. And we always have uh, since I was a kid. They've been on. Uh, I, I was just flicking through the channels the other day. And I think it was on M MG or something they had. Uh, the Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. So they they, they did all kinds of things. I mean, they would did they would all. I mean, Abbott and Costello meets the werewolf. Abbott and Costello meets the mummy. You know, I mean that that's great. 
Evan Costello meets Frankenstein reminds my, remains my absolute go-to movie every Halloween. I think it's honestly the perfect Halloween movie. You got Bela Lugosi returning as Dracula for the first time since the 1931 classic. You got Lyne Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman, Glenn Strange, who made a fantastic Frankenstein's monster. And uh, it just, it's a brilliant movie. It's both spooky and funny. And it is my, it's right there in my heart. Yeah, I love quirky stuff. Uh, anyways, I, I do want to compliment you also on your uh, uh, logo for your uh, ghost ghost boy. Is I get that right? Ghost boy. Oh yeah, ghost boy press. So uh, depending on which version you saw, my old logo was the triangle with the like, kind of goofy ghost head in it. I actually have a new logo uh, death, I've been using for the past couple of years. That's a, a death's head figure. So death's depending head, on, yeah, death's head. Oh yeah, that one is. Uh, I, I've always, again, being a New England boy, I, I just felt like I had to get that classic death's head on the on the logo. It is, and uh, you know my my co-host Ann, who who's not here tonight, but she is a tapophile, so she she uh, is dragged me to every cemetery and she takes photographs of all the headstones and everything else. So she knows all this stuff. So that would really please her, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have all those cool symbols here in in, the, in New England. So we're lucky. Uh, there's, a, anyway. there's something magical about an old cemetery. There really is. There is. Uh, anyway, back to, uh, oh, you got Ghost Boy. You got so many different ones. Uh, so when you did the uh, research on this Legend of Sleepy Hollow, mm -hmm. uh, how did you go about that? Well, that's an interesting one, because for years I had wanted to do kind of an annotated version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And um, I was going to essentially just reprint the story and have some notes in there uh, about the different historical figures who um, inspired the who inspired the story, because that's another one that I've loved ever since I was a kid. And in the process of putting that together, um, we, you know, uh, uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow was was published in uh, um, 1820. So it was just a little over 200 years ago when I was coming up on the 200th anniversary. And I thought, what a perfect time to do this. So everything all worked out. But while I was researching it, um, I, I found a, a book by a fellow named uh, um, Henry John Steiner, who's a, a historian down in Sleepy Hollow. And he talked about a Hessian soldier who had uh, um, actually been allegedly decapitated by a cannonball during the American Revolution and may have been the inspiration for the Headless Horseman. And I thought, well, that's that's great. That's a phenomenal story, perfectly matched up with, um, you know, with Washington Irving's story. Uh, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to figure out who this soldier was. And I thought, well, one of these experts on, you know, on Washington Irving's got to know the answer. And I went through every channel imaginable. And the truth is that every single person said, well, we don't know. Um, it's just a vague reference in, um, you know, in a in a general's notes from uh, from who served in the uh, American Revolution. And there's no details on it. And I thought, well, that's just not good enough. I, I felt like we had to be able to track it down. So um, I worked for years with uh, um, a wonderful uh, paranormal research group, group called Rise Up Paranormal, uh, based here originally in Rhode Island. Oh yeah, I know that. One of their uh, one of their team historians uh, um, is he's just a fantastic uh, researcher, and I asked him for some advice on it, and he said that I needed to find the German muster rolls because he said that if a German soldier was killed here, there's got to be a record of it. And so between the two of us, we tracked down um, some German records at the University of uh, Michigan, 
And uh, it seemed at first that that was going to be the right answer, but it turned out that they didn't have the the specific uh, um, time period that I needed. And the only place that they were was in uh, Marburg, Germany, at, at the Hessian. Um, uh, Hessians, by the way, were basically uh, um, German mercenary soldiers who were hired uh, to to fight alongside the British during the revolution. Uh, but the the Hessian archives in Marburg were the only place that they existed. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. I'm obviously not going to jump on a plane and go to Germany to try to dig through an archive to find these documents. And then I think probably within 15 minutes after I decided that there was no way I was going to do that, I, I said to myself, why would I tell myself no when I could just give it a shot. So I booked a plane, uh, booked a plane to Germany and showed up in Marburg and rifled through old documents until I tracked down the headless horseman. Um, and I was never sure that I was going to find it. And everything was in German and in tiny little handwritten Mm. notes. I was holding the actual 250 year old documents in my hands. Um, and to say that it was daunting was an understatement. But, uh, by the end of my four days in Marburg, I had, uh, I had, uh, narrowed it down to two soldiers, and uh, a little bit of a little bit of Sherlock work um, in determining the the uh, original reference from the American general's notes and the identity of these two soldiers. And I was able to uh, weed one of them out and determine that uh, that a, a Hessian grenadier, basically a a frontline uh, um, a heavy artillery soldier was the one who'd been decapitated on, of all days, November 1st, 1776, so on All Hallows' Day, and mm-hmm. uh, um, as the origin of the Headless Horseman myth. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, it was it was great fun. And actually finding that information was, uh, that was, that was a coup sort of thing that only happens once in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- that's fascinating that you actually went to Germany, went through the roles and, and so forth to, to find out you actually did your work. You just didn't sit on the Internet looking for stuff. There's a lot of great information on the internet, but I have to tell you that not not only is it not all there, but there's no fun in spending all your time sitting in your living room on your computer. I mean, we have to do that enough anyway, but for me, it's the travel that really like lights these things up. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gotten a chance because Marburg is only about two hours north of a little town called Darmstadt. And as long as I was there, I felt I should uh, go visit Castle Frankenstein as well. So I even made a side trip and spent some time at Castle Frankenstein. Yep. I needed to. I needed to sort of fit uh, to to finish out my set because I'd already been to Castle Dracula many years ago, and I figured if I've been to Castle Dracula, I've got to get the bookend and get Castle Frankenstein in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, go back to the internet for a second. Is that there's a lot of information out there, but a lot of it's erroneous. I mean, uh, people cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste the same story over and over again, and a a absolutely false story will become true because it's been, you know printed so many times. Uh, it's even used in books. I mean, you'll have some poor researchers that'll take something from the internet, shove it in their book, and and they'll prove it. Uh, it it's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, internet is good for a base that, but I, I wouldn't trust everything that's on it, for sure. It, it's actually really, really common for that to happen, unfortunately. And for me, I, I can't settle for that. I go for primary documents every time I can, whether it's if it's a scanned document that's an original, uh, you know, piece of work, that's great. But even, um, you know, with the, the the Headless Horseman story, so I had found this reference, uh, you know, I found the reference in the this general, his name was General William Heath. He was one of Washington's, uh, um, you know, uh, lead 
commanders during the New York campaign for the American Revolution. And then he specifically said in his notes that this Hessian soldier had his head taken off by a cannonball and was left dead on the field next to an artillery horse. And I thought, well, that's beautiful. It sounds exactly like the perfect setup. But I thought, what if someone has doctored that? What if somebody has actually, uh, you know, doctored that in the wake of it to try to make it look like, uh, you know, it matches up with Irving's story, which wouldn't be published for another 20 years. Um, so I actually tracked down an original edition, a first edition of William Heath's notes um, from a guy in Seattle and uh, bought it. And so I actually have a first edition of the general's uh, of the general's memoirs. And wow. sure enough, it's there, uh, you know, again, published, you know, uh, 20 years before Washington Irving wrote his story. And so, you know, that much uh, you know, that much played out. And and um, I actually was able to find the battleground in uh, um, North Castle, New York, which is just north of White Plains, where uh, the Headless Horseman was killed. Um, and uh, it's about six and a half, almost seven miles from Sleepy Hollow. But the reason that uh, the, the, the story is associated with Sleepy Hollow is because supposedly uh, when the horseman was killed, his body was taken to the churchyard and interred there, which would have been very unusual because he would have been a bit of foreign soldier. Yeah, but he probably would have been Protestant. And I think, well, let's see, no, wait a minute. I'm trying to think of that's, that's Dutch. Yeah, that would be Protestant too. Okay. What uh, I, I have a suspicion um, happened yeah. is that the, um, the, the red coat soldiers, the British soldiers would have had their bright red uniforms, but the, the Hessian soldiers actually wore blue uniforms with red cuffs um, and kind of a cream colored uh, um, breeches and, uh, you know, uh, waistcoat. And their, their uh, uniform was remarkably similar to an American uniform. And their, their um, headgear was very different. Their headgear was a miter cap, which was a long tall pointed uh, um, cap with like a copper front on it and would never have been mistaken for an American. But this was a decapitated soldier. So they didn't have the head to to identify him. They would have seen a soldier laying there covered in blood. So, so you know, again, some of his features already obscured, headless and wearing a uniform that looked so much like an American uniform. It's very likely that he could have been accidentally uh, um, taken with the rest of the with the rest of the casualties of the fight. So there's there's a lot of reason to believe that that the story could at least have a pretty solid basis in uh, a real incident. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask you, because I want to move on to another subject as well, is uh... The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Johnny Depp. Did you like it? Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. You know what? I'm a huge Tim Burton fan. You know, it's oh, yeah. a, it's a it's just a great. It's like a it's like an old Hammer horror film uh, made with new technology. And uh, yeah. I mean, everything from Danny Elfman's music to the beautiful atmosphere. Uh, it's just a fantastic film, and I watch it every Halloween. Yeah, it's a great great thing. So uh, one of the books, unfortunately, which is out of print, which intrigues me, of course, being New England Ghost Project, is Ghost of New England. Uh, a ghost new england i guess it's called that was my very first ghost boy press book okay so how did uh, do you gather local stories is it yeah, all I, of new I england just, all I, of new england or just rhode island it's no it's all it's all over new england and um i had uh you know i had uh, done two books prior to that i had done uh vampires of new england which was basically a uh, a revised version of my old vampires of rhode island kind of expanded to cover more of new england um when i got uh tired of, of writing about vampires i wrote a book on ghost ships and i'm going to be actually revising oh. that, revising that and releasing that uh, uh, sometime next year with uh, all sorts of nautical ghost stories which i have great fun with um and i just wanted to do something a little bit different so i thought a collection 
collection of classic ghost stories. So almost everything I deal with is historical. I very rarely deal with any kind of contemporary hauntings just because I love the historical stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's just, it's got a few stories that people will probably be familiar with. I actually talk about uh, Lizzie Borden. Um, okay. but the Lizzie Borden story actually ties into two other stories. One from Portsmouth, Rhode Island about a woman who was uh, um, burned to death um, and whose ghost apparently appeared and uh, um, accused her own son of committing the crime. It's probably the only case in American history where a ghost gives the damning testimony that sent a man to the gallows. Um, then uh, the story of a soldier who was killed at Fort Adams, also in Rhode Island, uh, um, and uh, who was a descendant of the same family, who's part of the Cornell family. And then uh, Lizzie Borden, who is actually a descendant of a fellow um, uh, named Innocent, a woman named Innocent Cornell. Um, and so I basically traced the Cornell curse, which was a curse of, of, uh, um, of fratricide and patricide. Every one of these people um, is either believed to of or murdered someone in their own family. Uh, so that's the, the the trilogy that sort of opens the book. And then I talk, I have a couple of old pirate stories in there. Um, you know, uh, there's actually a, a chapter on a werewolf legend uh, um, in uh, Middletown, Rhode Island, that connects to uh, the story of Dogtown in Massachusetts. And oh, it's, just, yeah. it's, it's a nice kind of, uh, um, it's a nice cross section of spooky stories from all over New England, mostly ghost stories, but there's a few witches, ghosts, vampires, and things like that kind of sneak into. Hmm. But excuse me. Um, do you have any new projects you're planning now? I have two new projects. Um, once the the Beast book is done, which I'm still kind of hammering away on, uh, once the Beast book is done, I'm going to be um, completing the revision and re-releasing Ghost Ships, uh, um, uh, which will be sometime early in 2024. And then uh, I moved to Connecticut fairly recently, after having been born and uh, raised in uh, Rhode Island. I uh, moved to Connecticut fairly recently, and I just love the, lo the legends and lore here. So I'm going to be doing a, a book called Ghostly Connecticut that just focuses on some of the fun ghost stories from that so that's my new my my two new projects on the horizon excellent excellent now earlier in the show you mentioned uh jack the ripper and the, you had a fascination with it as, as many people do and isn't that kind of like one of the cases like some similar to your your books where people have always conjectured about certain things you know they they collect certain evidence and and so forth. Is that what fascinates you is because it's never been solved and yet there are many theories about it? I think a, uh, the, that's a big part of it. I think the fact that it is unsolved is a huge part of it. I think the the, the truly uh, extraordinary circumstances that surround the case, the fact that, uh, you know, it, again, it was in a time when the, the death of, of uh, you know, of prostitutes or women, you know, sort of, you know, uh, who'd fallen on hard times was not uncommon, but that the police initially were effectively ignoring the case until um, it, it started to happen so frequently and it was so brutal that they couldn't ignore it, but they were prepared to. Um, once they actually got on the case, the fact that it, it ended up um, calling in some of the some of the uh, best minds of Scotland Yard at the time, Detective Abilene was a, a murder, uh, you know, was, was a homicide detective at a time when detective work was still very, very primitive, but somebody who was of a, a high enough station um, in his job that it's surprising that they put him on it. And 
it ended up involving ultimately possibly the royal family. There were suspicions that uh, Prince Edward, Duke of Clarence, the crown prince, uh, you know, could possibly have been the killer. There's a suspicion that um, Sir William Gull, who was the physician to the queen, may have been the killer, um, and uh, who was also Prince uh, Edward's physician. There's there's so much complexity to the case. There's so much conspiracy uh, associated with it. I'm not a conspiracy theorist as a general rule, but this one is beyond strange. Um, yeah, all the details of the case are remarkable. Yeah, I mean, there's theories that, you know, Jack went to uh, New York, even ended up in Texas. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a few uh, stories on it. Uh, you think you'll ever go into uh, putting together a book on that since you're so I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I actually am thinking about doing a, a book called Hunting the Ripper. I've kind of I've kind of branched into a I often do books in uh, um, sort of uh, like series in a way. I had my, yeah. you know, my blanks of New England. I had vampires of New England, ghost ships of New England, uh, ghosts of New England, et cetera. And then I started into the hunting series. So we did hunting Dracula now hunting the beast and hunting the Ripper is, is, uh, it's in the future. Um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not really set yeah. in stone and I won't do it if I can't bring something new to the discussion. That's important to me. I don't like to just retread what everyone's already said. If I can bring something new to the discussion, I will go forward with it. Um, you know, but it's been poured over and that's one of the reasons I kind of have held off on doing it, but I'm, very interested in putting it together yeah i mean there's so much information about that too and, and but you like you said we talked about earlier is you have to weed through it and say which is you know which is really based on fact and which is just based on legend it is. It's is. It's a remarkable thing, of course, that you know we were talking at the beginning of the program about uh, crime scene photos. All those crime scene photos still exist, and they are horrifying. They are truly horrifying. Um, I do a show uh, um, during the winter months called, uh, uh, was originally called Monday Night Monsters. We decided to sort of expand our horizons, and now it's called Monday Night Mysteries, Myths, and Monsters. We do this on YouTube. And um, cool. we did a show on The Ripper, and it is far and away, after about a year and a half of doing the show, it is far and away the most popular uh, episode we ever did. It's got it's got double the views of the next episode after it. So it's a it's a subject that's still incredibly fascinating. Um, and we even put up a disclaimer, uh, you know, for disturbing imagery at the beginning of it, because there's no way to talk about the Ripper without talking about sexual assault, the brutal, uh, absolutely brutal way that uh, that these women were killed. Um, you know, but again, it's I mean, it's a story that is beyond fascinating. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about perspectives. Um, you know, uh, we decided decided when we were doing the show that we didn't want to talk about these women as being prostitutes because prostitutes to me is like when we refer to, uh, you know, the Africans who were brought to this country against their will as slaves, as if right. that was who they were, but they weren't mm -hmm. slaves. They were enslaved people. And the women who were killed by Jack the Ripper, they weren't prostitutes. They were women in many cases who were simply struggling to survive and oh, prostitution sure. was a way that they could make money um, to survive to get food and to get lodging but that doesn't mean prostitutes is who they were it's what they had to do to survive and so you know sometimes it's important to change that perspective because it changes the discussion no i agree absolutely with you and it's a it's a good way of looking at it and, and sometimes we don't because you know like you said if you just say oh they were prostitutes and, and people will uh think okay they were uh lesser people than they really are but no, no they were still people just absolutely the same as you and i 
You know, and very few people, you know, grow up thinking, you know, I want to be a prostitute or I want to be a drug addict or any of the, the things that happen to people in life. And sometimes, again, people find themselves doing what they have to do to survive or finding ways to cope with life. And, you know, we end up just identifying them by the the, the bad aspect of who they were. But we do forget about the person underneath. And I, I think that it is better sometimes to look at the person's entire life, not just the part, not, not just the, the darkest yeah. chapters. Yeah, it's all all in words that like what we how we want to convey what's going on. I mean, we have, uh, you know, and I don't, don't mean this in any particular way, but we have people that will uh, are actually criminals and they get killed by the police or something. And they're portrayed as as, you know, outstanding citizens just a much about. So, oh, yeah. Know, oh, he was a great guy. He was a great uh, father. Great. This is like, oh, yeah, yeah okay. that happens all the time. You know, oh, yeah. you know, he was such a good athlete and things like that. And, you know, I mean, and yeah, no, the, it's it is sometimes bizarre. And of course, obviously, that often is a, a different portrayal based on a person's social status, too. And yeah, that's, unfortunately, course, it's too, definitely yeah. something that that we can work on changing. Yeah, hopefully. So anyways, uh, we are winding down to the end of the show. And uh, if people want to get a hold of your books, once again, I keep pressing this because you you, uh, you sell your own books. So I want to make sure that, you know, people know. So the easiest th thing to do is um, to find me at ghostboypress.com, um, you know, or even honestly, if you do a search, an internet search for Christopher Rondina, you will, you'll find me as well. But ghostboypress.com is my website. Uh, currently, um, I've got pre-sales up for Hunting the Beast. You can also get copies of Hunting Dracula um, and uh, uh, Legends of Sleepy Hollow. Ghosts of New England will be back available very soon. Uh, just got to get a new uh, order in from the printer on that one. Um, you can pick up a fairly inexpensive copy of my old book, Vampires of New England, which is technically out of print, but I still have a couple of cases left, so uh, get them while they're hot. And uh, um, as uh, time wears on, you'll find some some fun new stuff that'll come up. I also try to post news of any any uh, events or anything. I've got uh, I'll be, uh, at the... Um, I'll be at the Warren Paracon coming up at the end of October, which is at Mohegan Sun. I'll be at the uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll be at uh, um, the Ocean State Paracon, which is in mid-September. Um, and uh, so you can always find me and uh, all around October. Usually I'm at the Norman Bird Sanctuary Harvest Fair, um, which is in Middletown, Rhode Island. That's where I grew up. So I always make sure I go there every year. And then you can get them signed by hand. But even if you order them online, you will always get a signed copy. That's excellent. That's a, an excellent thing. Uh... Yeah, we have uh, a lot of friends in the same circle. I mean, uh, I did the Ocean State Paracon, I think, what, three years ago? Uh, yeah, it was great. New England is a tiny place, and that's what I love about it. Yeah, that's nice. But anyway, so uh, anything else you'd like to add before I say goodbye to you? No, I, I mean, again, I, you know, obviously I, I would uh, love if folks will uh, stop by and, and uh, you know, and check out my site and some of my books. And and uh, and don't forget, again, if you pre-order uh, Hunting the Beast, you're going to get a limited edition hardcover of it right now. Uh, and there's only a small number of those. So uh, so who knows when I'm dead, they might be valuable. So that's certainly. Worth <laughs> and uh, if you if you don't want to drop the extra money on it um, in early October, the, the trade paperback will be available. Right. So. All right, Chris, uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Thank you for having me. Always, always a pleasure. And uh, um, when uh, I get my next project up and running or we start working on Jack the Ripper, maybe I'll come back. OK, thank you. Yeah, I'm interested in the uh, ghost ships, too, because that's that's a favorite of mine. I, you know, I'm very much involved with lighthouses of birth on the border. Directly I actually just started working as an educator at Mystic Seaport. And so uh, um, it's oh, great. Oh, cool. I'm, 
yeah, so I'm I'm there all the time talking about nautical history, and it's so much fun. Yeah, yeah, my brother, my yeah, my, my son just went there on his vacation just uh, last week, I believe. It's a it's a great great place. Yeah, so. funny. All right, so thank you so very very much for being on the show. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Ghost Chronicles. What the heck are we? Next Generation. I know it's one of them. Anyways, I am Ron Kolick, and it's away right now. Um, and we're right here on Tojanet and wherever you get your podcasts, everything from, used to be iTunes, now it's Apple or something, but this bunch of them you can get it at. Uh, we are brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 286 Merrimack Street, Bethune, Massachusetts, the Glant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, not the end of Massachusetts, and our very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. You too can become a member for a mere three bucks a month, less than a cup of coffee. You have access to over 50 videos, and other things, including Ghost Chronicles, the magazine, and other stuff. So check that out. Become a member of the Dead Air Society on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. So uh, I do also want to mention that coming up in September 29th, 30th, and October 1st is our 12th annual Spirit Quest up in Groveland, Massachusetts. So it's always a fun time. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Uh, we won't be back. See you next week. Good night. God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good lords.